Welcome to episode number, I feel like I'm cheating if I call this episode number two. So we're going to call this episode number one of World History Class with Mr. Lutz. And today's topic is going to be short and sweet, and it is before history. So we're talking about the earliest of peoples, the earliest of Homo sapiens, and we're going to get kicking off right away with the key concept connections. So let's begin. So, today's episode is going to deal with basically the first couple of pages of chapter one in your Stern's textbook. Basically, everything including civilization. But once we get to Tigris Euphrates civilization, we're not going to be including that information. That's going to be a separate episode on the earliest civilizations. So today's connections with the key concepts are going to be with key concept 1.1 and key concept 1.2. And what I want to do is I want to go straight to the key concepts from the College Board's curriculum from AP World History. And you guys will be getting these documents soon enough for me as the year gets underway here. Uh, So you have them for your own reference. But key concept 1.1 is where we begin. And it starts by saying the term big geography draws attention to the global nature of world history. Throughout the Paleolithic period, humans migrated from Africa to Eurasia, Australia, and the Americas. Early humans were mobile and creative in adapting to different geographical settings from savanna to desert to tundra. Humans also developed varied and sophisticated technologies. So what I want to do with this first segment is basically connect that key concept with the stuff that you've been reading in chapter one and expand on it maybe a tiny bit, but really just try to get you to see where these relevant connections come in. So we can start really right at the beginning of the chapter, which we'll call the introduction, but it's pretty much the first couple pages, I would say pages eight through ten. And uh, when they call it the Paleolithic Age, they're referring to what is called the Old Stone Age. Uh, Paleo meaning old, Neo being new. So when you hear the Neolithic Age, that's going to mean New Stone Age. Now, the Paleolithic Age is talking about two and a half million years ago to about 120,000 BCE. And really all you have at this time is simple stone tools being used. They're going to increase in size human brain capacity is going to improve. Um, But this is really where your migrations out of Africa are going to begin. And if you you tune into the news every now and again, you will see that this is a constantly evolving concept. When exactly did humans or their close ancestors migrate out of Africa? So what I'll tell you is the best of my knowledge right now, but understand this is subject to the newest finding in archaeology that comes out seemingly once every couple months here. Um, So migrations out of Africa begin with our predecessors. We consider ourselves to be what are called Homo sapiens, but the migrations out of Africa are said to begin with Homo erectus. And these occur hundreds of thousands of years ago. I'm going to keep that in general terms. But uh, more recently, I would say more significantly, our predecessors, Homo sapiens, happens more recently. 
Um, they're going to have migrated throughout Africa, Eurasia about 100,000 years ago, Australia 60,000 years ago, trotting across the old Siberian land bridge into Alaska about 25,000 years ago. And then we'll say all habitable regions, so not the Arctic or the Antarctic, uh, and not any kind of remote islands that you hope to find yourself vacationing on this summer uh, about 15,000 years ago. And these humans who are making these migrations do have tools that they utilize for a host of different reasons, be it for hunting, for digging, for scraping, for cutting, but they're stone tools. Uh, the most crucial thing, though, for them is going to be the use of fire. And fire is so important for these migrations to have happened because it allows for warmth in non-temperate, unfriendly climates. It allows for the cooking of food. It allows for people to protect themselves from predators. And later on, especially as we get into agriculture, it allows for the clearing of land while also quickly restoring nutrients into the soil that if they were to have broken down naturally, um, they would not replenish themselves as quickly as they do if the field were have to have been set fire. Uh, so yeah, fire, the most critical thing that's going to have developed out of the Paleolithic era for humans because it allows them to expand into these climates that just would have been inaccessible previously. And so some key features of the people who were living during the Paleolithic era is going to be the fact that they're typically keeping small families. Uh, if you really think about it, there's so much movement. These are hunter-gatherer people, people who need to find their food source. So they're constantly on the move, meaning then they can't sustain a large family because then they have to lug those kids along. And it's not like the beach where they just have those things with the oversized tires that you can just wheel these kids through. We're talking about very physically demanding work that really only allows for families to remain very small. And another feature that's pretty common, or at least believed to have been common at this time with these Paleolithic families, is that you're going to see gender equality. Uh, you're going to see the tasks that are required for survival to seemingly be distributed relatively evenly uh, between genders. So what's key to the survival of the human race and the improvement of the human race at this time is going to be communication. Communication allows knowledge to be passed down between groups and generations. It's not just an exchange of ideas from people to people. It's an exchange between generations. And then that knowledge that's being passed down can constantly be improved upon and we can get to a society as complex as we have it today. All right, Key Concept 1.1 done. On to Key Concept 1.2, which reads, quote, In response to warming climates at the end of the last ice age, about 10,000 years ago, some groups adapted to the environment in new ways, while others remained hunter-foragers. Settled agriculture appeared in several different parts of the world. The switch to agriculture created a more reliable, but not necessarily more diversified, food supply. Farmers also affected the environment through cultivation of selected plants, to the exclusion of others, the construction of irrigation systems, and the use of domesticated animals for food and labor. Populations increased, village life developed, followed by urban life with all its complexity. Patriarchy and forced labor systems developed, giving elite men concentrated power. Pastoralism emerged in parts of Africa and Eurasia. Like agriculturalists, 
Pastoralists tended to be more socially stratified than hunter-foragers. Pastoralist mobility facilitated technology transfers through their interactions with settled populations. So what does this all mean? Well, in your textbook on page number 12, where it starts talking about the Neolithic Revolution, this is where you're going to see key concept 1.2 come into play. And honestly, folks, I would be hard-pressed to find a more significant revolution in our world than the Neolithic Revolution. Now, all of you who love the American Revolution or maybe the French Revolution or one of the later revolutions this year, you can make a case that those are super important, and trust me, I will. But the Neolithic Revolution just does so much because it's allowing for us to stay in one place, for us to have a secured food source that we know is going to be there more or less throughout history. There will be famines and there will be lots of problems with that, but it's a much more secured food source than humans had been used to prior. And the key thing to understand here, I think, is that we call it the Neolithic Revolution or the Agricultural Revolution. And a revolution, that word, implies a more sudden change. And you have to understand that the Neolithic Revolution is not sudden at all. It's a lot slower than how I just said those few words there, in fact. Um, it, it really takes a span of thousands of years for it to develop into the ways that we see it as being defined around us. Now, your book will get into the why does the agricultural revolution happen. It'll float a few th theories around population increases require a more stable food source. It might get into the idea that big game animals are decreasing. There's a need for a more stable food source. Or, or that just harvesting wild grains leads to people deciding they want to plant seeds and it's easier to find. Um, there's really no one commonly agreed upon answer. So just kind of have those all tucked away in your back pocket. Um, but what you're going to see is the Middle East is going to be one place where this is going to emerge, agriculture that is, also in China, uh, also even in, in Mesoamerica or, or, or Latin or Central America, as we'll get to later this year. And the reason why is because these places have river systems where annual floods occur. And these floods allow for a replenishment of nutrients in the soil, and they have weather that makes it at least predictable enough to the point where you can know when and where to plant your seeds and know when and where that harvest is going to come up from. So why the agricultural revolution is so important is because of all the things that stem from having a stabilized food source and an agricultural surplus. That is so key. I almost forgot the agricultural surplus, folks. Um, why agricultural surplus matters is because that means not everyone needs to secure their own food. Food is going to be able to be stored, meaning other people can do other things. Uh, what you have is going to be called a division of labor. You can have pottery workers. You can have weavers. You can have these artisans who can explore different types of areas of expertise. They can build defense systems. They can build homes. They can build irrigation systems. They can build all these larger scale projects. But what that's also going to require is going to be an organization of labor. So you need someone with power and authority who can organize those people into um, labor units that can accomplish these large-scale tasks. 
So now if you remember the hunter-gatherers were relatively egalitarian or where everyone was the same, you're going to start to see more and more of a division of a hierarchy between people as the food source becomes more and more stabilized. So these features, these developments are going to lead to what is called quote-unquote civilization. Such a complicated term. So much to unpack with the word civilization, which we will get to in class. But where you can see civilization, as your book mentions, is a place in Turkey that is called Katolhoyuk. Uh, and what you see in the remains of this village that some archaeologists discovered is a place where anywhere from five to 6,000 people live there at its peak. And in this community, you could have seen wheat, barley grown, you would have seen sheep and cattle being raised by the villagers, and therefore that abundance of food that I was talking about leading to this division of labor. Uh, and they had these powders and they had these weavers in this town. And also trade was prevalent here. They, they traded in this stone called obsidian, uh, a stone that could take a very sharp point and lead to different types of potentially jewelry, but also knives, cutting tools and implements that other civilizations may not have had access to. So this, this town is going to emerge not only as a civilized town, but also one that is thoroughly integrated into trade. And civilization sounds pretty good. It sounds in part in a rough way, like the world that we have. But there are some people who don't think that the agricultural or the Neolithic revolution is all that great of a thing. In fact, there's one who we'll talk about who says that it is the worst mistake in human history. Pause for dramatic effect. Uh, and you might wonder why, how could you think that this is the worst mistake in human history? We'll get into that in class. Your book will touch on it a little bit, talking about the class distinctions that emerge and the warfare that starts to develop between civilized groups of people as they compete over land, but also to uh, more exposure to disease, the threat of outside invasion, because your civilized people have stuff that people want. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a really strong debate that exists on whether or not the Neolithic Revolution is a good thing, and that's an ongoing debate. All right, on to the second part of the podcast now, the segment that I'm going to be calling Zooming In, where I take a look at some type of topic mentioned in your reading and really just try to tease out some more detail about it. And this one's going to come from a uh, NPR story that I had heard earlier this week. The title of the story was 14,000-year-old piece of bread rewrites the history of baking and farming. So let me explain. Uh, there is someone who was an archaeobotanist from the University of Copenhagen that found this black particle kind of stuff. She said it was the stuff that looks like you find in the bottom of the toaster, or if you're as messy as I can be all over your counter after you make some toast. Um, but they came to realize that it was food particles, and they did some investigation, and they realized that not only was it just food particles, that it was breadcrumbs. 
ancient breadcrumbs. In fact, the oldest breadcrumbs that have ever been found. And you're probably thinking, like, this guy is really excited about breadcrumbs. Is this what this year is going to be like? A teacher flipping out in front of class over these breadcrumbs. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. It's a big deal because we used to believe that baking only existed up until about 10,000 years ago. And it was found that these breadcrumbs, like the article suggests, the article title, that it was 14,000 years ago that these breadcrumbs were developed. And what that tells us then is that baking came before farming. And we used to believe the other way around was the truth, that farming came first and then baking. And they even found mustard seeds in the area. What they came to think there was some kind of condiment. So maybe they're making the world's oldest soft pretzels here. I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I really hope so as a guy who likes a solid soft pretzel every now and again. Um, but we can give credit to ancient hunter-gatherer ancestors as maybe better food preparers than we had thought before. And so... Yeah, is is finding 14,000-year-old bread that we thought was 10,000-year-old bread in the grand sweep of our classroom that big of a deal? Maybe not. Maybe it's not the biggest deal in the world. But it reveals a bigger historical deal. And it's this idea that new evidence... By the way, that's my dog, Messi. You'll get to see and hear plenty of him, I'm sure, as we go through these podcasts, and he'll be barking it up and doing his thing. Anyway, what this shows us, though, is that new evidence is constantly being found that can overturn pre-existing historical truths. And I say that word, truths, in quotations, because these truths are sometimes only truths in that historical moment. They're subject to change. And that change can be a new piece of evidence. Your 14,000-year-old breadcrumb or your 13,000-year-old taco shell or your 10,000-year-old piece of non-bread, whatever it may be. It doesn't have to be new evidence, though. It can be a new perspective, looking at the same historical event through someone else's eyes or asking a different question when studying the same event. That can change a pre-existing historical quote-unquote truth. And that's, I think, what makes history the greatest thing, is that we think it's this narrative that everyone just agrees upon, but it's not. It's this narrative that is constantly being examined and debated and reevaluated. And I'm glad this story emerged because it allows me to show you right at the beginning of the year, history is not this commonly agreed upon thing. So, rolling on into our third segment here, which is going to be the explainer. This is where I'm going to try to shed some more light on something that I don't think your book is doing a particularly fantastic job of covering. No offense, it's hard to cover everything in a world history textbook. Uh, but the one thing that I think that needs to be addressed here is going to be pastoralism. It was mentioned in Key Concept 1.2, but not so much in your book at this point. So I wanted to give you a quick overview of it. Basically, instead of growing your own grains as agriculturalists would have been doing, a pastoralist is raising livestock. 
their own animals. And they are using all parts of that animal, the, the meat, the milk, the, the hides, the animal's fur, um, to make life more manageable for themselves. And they're going to have to typically be more nomadic because they need to constantly be on the move to find fodder for their animals to keep them alive and keep them healthy. And these pastoralists are going to be so critical to our study in world history this year because they're going to serve as the people who connect those sedentary or less mobile societies together and really pass knowledge or technology between those groups and really keep history moving forward through exchanges at this point in time. So that's about it. Before I go, the only thing that I wanted to do is just make a very simple, probably so simple it's almost obvious recommendation to you guys. And that's going to be the Crash Course videos, Crash Course World History with John Green, which is actually was the first Crash Course series that was developed. So it's hosted by the man, myth, the legend, John Green himself. Uh, I think that these are really good videos that provide you with an overview, probably in far greater and better detail than I do. But the reason I make this podcast is to link what you're reading with what we're doing in class much more directly. But Crash Course is a great source for you. I strongly encourage you to watch those as much as needed. And he's got two series and both first episodes of those two series. The first series, The Agricultural Revolution, it's a great episode to get you started. And then the other one we're actually going to be watching for homework at some point, which is on rethinking civilization, as I said. It's a topic that is quite complicated, whether you're aware of it or not. So, that's it. First episode's in the books. I survived. Not sure if you did, but I know I did. So if you guys have any questions, uh, let me know through Schoology or or leave me a comment on, on the blog. But really, that's it. So, take care, everybody. I'll see you soon.